Hey, it's Isabel, and this is another episode of Borderline. As you know, this is a 100% independent media funded by its listeners and readers and members. And I would be super grateful if you would go to borderlinepa.com. First, sign up for the newsletter. It's entirely free to um, get every episode and stay in touch. But also consider a paid membership, which is what helps me continue to bring you Borderline every week. That's at join.borderlinepod.com. You'll get every episode two days early, as well as more content. And there's a lot more coming this spring. So check it out and see if it is for you. And two people that did this past week are Nicole Stevens and Berenger Parmley. Thank you and welcome. Now on with the episode. There's all these different ways that borders are enacted within the country. And I conceptualize it less as a fence around the periphery and more as this kind of heavy fog which lies across society. Hi, I'm Isabel Rogal, and this is Borderline. Could we get rid of borders entirely? Not the geopolitical lines that distinguish one country from another or one culture from another, but what my guest today calls the border regime, the political and security apparatus that determines where and how one may live based on where and how one is born. Leah Cohen says yes. It's a pretty radical idea coming out of pretty radical politics, more radical, I suspect, than many people listening, and I know you're an open-minded bunch, therefore it is always worth listening to and examining these ideas. Leah Cohen is the author of Border Nation, a story of migration, just out with Pluto Press. She works at Project 17, an advice center for migrant families with no recourse to public funds, and is the former political editor of Galdem. If you're not in the UK, it's a pretty big progressive online magazine here. Here is my conversation with Leah Cohen. To get us going in broader strokes, Mm. what are borders for? What purpose do they serve? Mm. I mean, I think borders exist for a number of reasons. I mean, the kind of historical foundations of borders is that they exist as a kind of extension of the colonial project. So obviously Britain went out into the world and um, colonised and marauded, you know, 90% of countries um, in some way and brought all of that wealth back to the hub of the empire and then borders exist as this barrier for people who are living in formerly colonized countries or countries where Britain has interfered in different ways and left um, very kind of difficult situations. Borders exist to prevent people from whom wealth has been extracted from coming back to the hub of the empire and accessing that wealth. So they exist as a kind of barrier. That's the kind of underpinning historical roots of of borders. I think another facet is that they exist as a kind of profit, a profit-making enterprise. And I mean that in the sense that, um, you know, deportations have increased um, in the past couple of decades. And so too have the profits that are being made by the private companies who are outsourced to carry them. And we can see the same things happening with immigration detention centres. You have a lot of kind of private prisons in the US. There's also privatisation happening here in the UK. And that kind of dovetails with the deportation of people who have served, um, spent time in prison. So there's this massive web of outsourced industry 
which the border regime is very much tied up in, which creates a lot of money for those private companies. So those are the kind of two working parts of the border and, and why I understand them to exist in the present day. Mm. That's interesting. So we're we're gonna we're gonna address both of those. I mean, starting with your first point, which is to link to to colonialism, mm. which I'll be honest, um, is something I found fascinating. Well, first that statistic that ninety percent of the world um, influenced, conquered, touched in some way by by yeah. the British Empire was was a pretty stunning stat to me. I, I guess I hadn't really thought of of borders as that linked colonialism. I guess it's more potent in the British example because mm. of the history of the British Empire mm. um, but but I guess that could apply to to the US to um, my country France certainly as well yeah is there something then to the fact that borders seem to have risen in importance as empires were disappearing yeah I mean I think I mean, I'm, I'm trying not to focus too much on like the example of Britain. I mean, that, that is what, no, what that's, that's fair. What that's the book focuses <laughs> on. But um, yeah, I mean, for example, in Britain, you know, the um, the 1905 Aliens Act is often pointed to as the kind of the beginning of immigration laws, which create the kind of um, which which is the border kind of inaction, right? Um, and the 1905 Aliens Act primarily targeted poor Jewish people who were categorised as quote-unquote aliens who were seeking protection and persecution. And before 1905, laws had been passed in countries that were colonised by Britain to stop people travelling from the colonies to the central hub of the empire. So there's this kind of through line from, you know, pre-1900 immigration laws and borders existing to kind of keep people at bay and then um, we see kind of more of these immigration laws being applied on British soil. And I think it kind of tells us that obviously Britain's borders are a fiction, ostensibly created to kind of shut out racialized people from the UK in order to protect the interests of, you know, capital and, and money making. And the, the kind of broader idea underpinning this, which has maybe more of a kind of international application, is this idea of racial capitalism which is something that the theorist Cedric Robinson describes as the idea that capitalism is this economic system and it relies on the accumulation of wealth. And that can only happen by producing and moving through relationships of of severe inequality among human groups. So this is the kind of racist foundation for borders, I think, which hopefully the book draws out um, this idea that capitalism and racism are so kind of intrinsically linked um and the bordering project is both a project of of kind of racism and and classism at the same time if we think about the people who can cross borders and who can't you know it it kind of runs along lines of race and class definitely in a a very global sense Mm -hmm. yeah i was i was struck reading it uh, just how different the experience of borders is depending on your national origins, your race and your and your socioeconomic status from, mm-hmm. you know, something that is synonym with holidays and, and discovery and adventure and something that can be um, extremely violent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at, you know, the early pandemic to kind of take a very kind of topical example um, and how the virus spread, it was through, you know, it really spiked in these 
international cities of business and commerce. It was, you know, Paris, London, New York, Milan, northern Italian cities. It and it was people, um, you know, people with wealth and privilege continuing to cross borders, even in a state of global pandemic and and spreading. I mean, there's other kind of factors at play for sure, but it's very interesting the way that the virus spiked in those cities. It wasn't, um, you know, working class people in the global south flying around the world spreading the virus, which kind of tells us something around the the privilege of who can move, even in a in a time of crisis when moving is actually putting a lot of people's lives on the line. Mm. But it's something that has been now um, extremely limited. In fact, uh, borders are borders are back mm. <laughs> very much so in, in a very strong way, as much as they had gone. I guess, again, they had gone uh, for a particular set of the population, if you think exactly. about free movement and, and visa-free travel. Yes. I mean, yes and no. I think that the idea that that borders had gone, you know, even though we had this kind of EU free movement that was still, and again, particularly focusing on Britain's role, you know, Operation Nexus was this kind of joint operation happening in the UK between um, the Met Police and the Border Force, which was about rounding up rough sleeping, ostensibly rough sleeping EA people um, and deporting them to countries within the EU, even in a time of free movement, because there was this piece of guidance that had been kind of very quietly put out which said that um, if you're rough sleeping that's a breach of your treaty rights and therefore you know your right to reside in the country even if you're an EU national would be up for debate so as much as we can conceive of living in this kind of liberal uh, utopian world of of crossing borders there's always that that pushback happening again along lines of race and class in particular um, which I think is is a, a centuries-old tactic, really. Mm. That example of, of um, rough sleeping is a good illustration of, of a point that I think you make throughout the book in Touches, which is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like borders aren't just something that you cross once, kind of on the edges of the country, which is how mm. people picture borders. Uh, but in fact, if you're an immigrant, the border is something that you encounter every day, right? Yeah, yeah, completely. And there's this brilliant phrase from the um, the No Borders movement, which isn't, um, and I'm probably going to like misquote it now. We didn't we didn't cross the border, but the border crossed us. It's this sense of yeah, it's not just about stepping over this kind of geopolitical line from one country into another. It's about we only have to look at the Windrush scandal to know about people who've lived in this country for decades and decades, very much you know, consider themselves to be British, call this country their own, and the border will continue to cross you. And we see that in the sense of, you know, the everyday borders, whether it's right to rent checks when you're trying to rent a property. And there's now kind of legislation in the UK since 2014 and 2016, which means that you have to, you know, show your identity documents in order to do that, or your landlord can face a fine or jail time whether it's having to show documents in healthcare settings, you know, maybe you've just given birth and you're slapped with this like thousands of pounds bill and you're having your ID checked, Um, whether it's nationality data being collected in schools. There's all these different ways that borders are enacted 
within the country. And I, I can kind of conceptualize it less as like a fence around the periphery um, and more as this kind of heavy fog which which lies across society and um, can impact you at every turn if you're somebody who's subject to immigration control or even just kind of racialized as somebody that is not within the kind of state's vision of, of what Little Britain might look like. Mm. I just found um, an example of that last week, which selfishly struck me as a, as a European because it was the first time that it was so in my face, mm. was, a, was a job ad from uh, the Scottish government. And the job advertisement required applicants with EU citizenship to justify of their settled status yeah. before applying. Right. So you're not even at the point of signing a, a work contract, but before applying and, and before settled status is even a requirement mm. because uh, that's before June. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was one example. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all changing, isn't it? This, this kind of landscape of the, the settlement scheme. It's mm. uh, a brave new world. It is, it is indeed. And so the other um, thing that you pointed out earlier is borders as a profit-making enterprise, really. Uh, that's probably the chapter that is that was most eye-opening for me because the whole, I mean, immigration enforcement and immigration detention especially is so completely invisible to us in society mm. and, you know, until you encounter it. Um, as an individual mm. it's even more invisible than prisons it just seems like mm. we don't know it's there yeah do we? which is remarkable really considering that one of the kind of um well is it remarkable is it not one of the stated reasons that the government has immigration detention is to kind of act as a deterrent for people who are I don't remember the exact wording but you know seeking to frustrate immigration law or whatever um so immigration detention is supposed to be this kind of, you know, beacon warning people, if you come to this country and you don't have papers, then this is where you'll end up. But then they're hidden in these kind of shadowy business parks in the middle of nowhere, which then begs the question, you know, is it a deterrent or is there another agenda at play here that's not being stated? Which, mm. you know, as I, as you've said, as I argue in the book, I think it is. These are largely run by private um outsource companies um at a much you know if you wanted to make a very dehumanizing business case for why immigration detention shouldn't exist you know it's much more expensive to maintain these effectively category b high security prisons um than it would be to enable people to kind of live in the community whilst they're sorting out their um, status or, or waiting for their asylum claim to be decided or whatever it is. So the kind of logic behind them doesn't really doesn't really stack up. I think that's that's part of the the big red flag that suggests that there's, there's another agenda at play, really. Because who are the people who are kept there? It's not necessarily people who've sort of exhausted all their appeals and are awaiting uh, departure. No, I mean anyone who's kind of subject to immigration control can be detained at any time um, and detained indefinitely. I think Britain is the only country um, in Europe that practices indefinite immigration detention. I mean, the places that people are most likely to be detained are if you're reporting. So if, if as part of a condition on your leave, you have to go and sign on at a reporting centre maybe every 
week or two weeks or month. Um, or if you've just made an asylum claim um, or at, at a port or, or, you know, place of entry in the country. Um, that's also a place that people are likely to be detained or on a raid. So often there are kind of immigration raids on shops and businesses and pre-pandemic kind of transport hubs as well, where people would get picked up and put in detention. But yeah, it is any anybody who's subject to immigration control um, can be detained at any time indefinitely. And what are the conditions there? They're pretty terrible and they're terrible because of the fact that they are run by these private companies who um, are obviously trying to make profits on the money that they're given. So they're kind of these companies like Serco and G4S and GEO Group compete for these government tenders. And obviously the way to to get the job is to offer the lowest price. Um, And then if you want to take home a big profit, you know, if you're getting... I don't know, £120 a day, let's, I've just plucked that figure at random, for, uh, you know, to detain one person for a day, you want to spend as little as that money on that, that's per, that person's needs, whether it's their food or their healthcare or their kind of legal access to legal support, so that you can take home a bigger, a bigger wedge of that money and put it into the pockets of your shareholders. And that's very much what is routinely seen. I used to organised with a group called SOAS Detainee Support and we would work with people in immigration detention centres who were fighting for release or just kind of wanted some support and wanted to have a chat whilst they were in there. It's it's a very lonely and isolating place. Um, Yeah, and people would complain of, um, not complain, just kind of raise the issue of the, the terrible food, whether it's, you know, chips three times a day and no vegetables and, um, really kind of yeah not nutritious food at all really terrible healthcare people complaining of high blood pressure nosebleeds and just being given paracetamol on the occasion people were deemed unwell enough to have a doctor's appointment or a hospital appointment they would have to attend it in handcuffs which meant that lots of people didn't didn't want to do that because obviously that's very humiliating and embarrassing and um so people would kind of hold off accessing healthcare even if it was a really serious issue um, which is why you see incredibly high rates of self-harm and suicide and, and deaths in detention kind of comparative to the non-detained population. Um, it takes a real toll on people's mental health to be detained somewhere and not know when you're going to be released. I think some people who had been in prisons and then had their prison sentence finished and then been transferred to an immigration detention center had said you know at least in prison you you're given a date and you're kind of counting down the days to that date of when you're released whereas in detention you're just kind of counting up this indefinite amount of days not knowing how many you know how big this this figure is going to get um so it, it takes a pretty serious toll I think on people's mental and emotional well-being to be in that indefinite incarcerated situation Mm. that kind of puts the light to the idea that borders protect from crime and violence Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's more of a a, of a creator of of violence and crime too i mean you mentioned kind of how borders feed um smugglers essentially Mm. yeah the whole idea of modern 
the kind of contemporary framing of modern slavery, I think, is very interesting, um, very ideological. There's a really great book called something like The Truth About Modern Slavery by Emily Kenway, which came out um, maybe just this month or last month, which really unpicks this whole notion of like the Conservative Party in the UK really ran with this concept of the modern slavery. Um, in 2015, they they had the Modern Slavery Act, which was this whole kind of concerted effort to crack down on these, um, you know, gang masters and um, mm. modern slavery rings. But it, there were ads all over the airport. I exactly. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. This is what a modern slave looks like, and here's how to like yeah. uh, spot the signs. Um, but it's very interesting how, again, this really kind of dovetails with immigration control. It's very much about like firming up the border and stopping people crossing and stopping stopping these smugglers getting in and stopping um, people being able to move, rather than looking at the real kind of issue of what has become termed modern slavery, which is labor exploitation, people um, being, you know, maybe coming to the country, maybe through support from somebody else who's bringing them here. But then, you know, the job that they thought they were coming for isn't what they thought it was. And rather than them being able to have recourse to, you know, workers' rights and and labor protections, um, it becomes an issue of, of trafficking and smuggling rings which, um, you know, isn't really accurate. For something to be trafficking, it has to meet a series of different criteria, which includes, you know, an intention to to exploit and uh, a kind of concealment of the reality of it and all of these different criteria that quite often aren't kind of applicable to a situation which is, which is actually largely about labour exploitation. It's not about someone being, like, kidnapped from their bed and, like, put in the back of a van and driven over the border that's very rarely the situation um it's more about people kind of coming to this country seeking kind of economic um seeking employment or or, you know a different a different way of making money and um facing exploitation when they get here primarily because if you're somebody who's undocumented you know your boss knows that they can they can treat you in that way because they know that you're not going to be able to access the usual routes of of recourse and protection that a, a documented worker can so yeah in, in short the the site of harm in the situations i've described come about because of the border the border creates the harm if the border wasn't there or if the border wasn't kind of upheld in this very rigid way that it is now there'd be nothing for someone to be trafficked across for example or if when people came here and they were undocumented they could still kind of get report things to the police if they wanted to or report things to different bodies that can assist them to trade unions without fear of like being deported then that would remove that site of harm but the the modern slavery act angle is very much about like firming up the border and thinking that's going to stop people moving when people have moved since the dawn of time that's always going to happen you're just going to make it more dangerous mm. that's something we discussed a couple of weeks ago with, with Zoe Gardner mm. who was on the on the podcast the idea that this hostility towards immigrants doesn't stop immigration it just makes them more vulnerable to all sorts of of abuse yes absolutely yeah mm. Is there anything that a border is good for? I, I, maybe maybe you're not the person I should ask. But, uh... Uh, 
That's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. I mean, um, I don't, I mean, a, a, a border in the sense of like the border regime. No, I think it's, it's ultimately harmful and it's ultimately um, exacerbating and kind of reliant upon inequalities. I mean, people can still demarcate, you know, this is this country and this is the next. And, you know, people will always want to kind of group together and have perhaps national identities and national cultures. These are very kind of amorphous things that I don't think can be even like prescribed by borders anyway. But the border regime as it exists, I don't think, has a function in a society that is premised upon, you know, things like care and compassion and uh and justice um which we we might hope that's what we're kind of building towards perhaps Hmm. there's another premise that you that you unpack in another favorite chapter of mine it's the notion of the the good immigrant Mm. and that the immigrant kind of has to contribute Mm. um shouldn't they I mean shouldn't we all I guess we should all contribute to our community but um is there is there an extra burden that should be placed on the immigrant to contribute to society Mm. I mean I think yeah the the word that you use there about community is is definitely more what I'm interested in I'm I'm definitely interested in people's um maybe not contribution but the way that we build communities together in the way that we kind of look out for each other and the way that we can be more kind of caring and build communities that are based on on harm reduction and everybody having what they need um to be you know safe and stimulated and and to to live comfortable lives um in terms of contributing i don't think the the for me there is necessarily a kind of a different burden on somebody contributing just because they've come from a different country I think if we look at the broader picture as we were talking about right at the beginning of kind of why borders exist and how they came to exist as an extension of the colonial project if anything people crossing borders and coming to this country particularly from the global south have an entitlement actually to the wealth and the riches of this country which come in different shapes and sizes you know not just like literal money but access to opportunities, access to housing, access to healthcare, um, access to green space, all of those things. And if anything, the people who have had that wealth extracted from them shouldn't have to contribute anything. They're just returning to like the scene of the crime almost. Um, I don't know if that's that's maybe too radical a framing for uh, a uh, <laughs> whatever the day is, Tuesday evening. But um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I definitely don't think there's any, there should be any particular onus on anyone to contribute more than anyone else, um, just because they've crossed the border to come here. Mm. So it's really that notion that um, immigration is really the reverse of the medal of, of colonialism. They go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, um, that's my very simplistic framing. But yes, I think we can't talk about borders and migration a historically we have to understand like why migration happens and why particular routes of migration happen if you yeah if you look at something again like the Windrush scandal you know it wasn't just like a bunch of people being like oh yeah Britain like that looks interesting maybe we'll just pop over there like the reason that people like my grandparents could come from Jamaica as 
technically, you know, citizens, um, even though they weren't treated as thus, is because of Britain's kind of long colonial history in, in Jamaica, right back from kind of slavery and how that then dovetails with more contemporary like economic projects, you know, through kind of causing the country to rack up a lot of debt through the World Bank and structural adjustment programs. It's there's a long history there of of Britain's involvement. Um, so people are very much retracing very well worn steps to come to these islands, I think. Mm. Well it's no surprise then within that framing um that that people would have a hard time grasping immigration because we're not really grasping that colonial history either. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And seeing it as even as immigration, you know, like when my granddad came, he came as a as a British citizen. He didn't come as a migrant. Um so Right. He could have come from Yorkshire to yeah. London. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I think it's maybe that's hard for people to kind of yeah, wrap their heads around as well. Mm-hmm. So um I think it's it's been made clear now in the last half hour or so that you are a border abolitionist. Yes, um, didn't hide that one very well. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's that's all right. But that is that is um, you know quite a quite a radical position that I think even a lot of people, um, you know, who are regular listener of this podcast and pretty um, globalist in their mindset may not embrace. I think. So how do you? I'm sure you you hear it a lot that it's you know at best that it's a naive utopia and or even that it's dangerous and that's something that we should want. So how do you how do you sell this idea of a borderless world to people who maybe aren't whose politics aren't as radical as yours? I think um, I think it's useful to remember that kind of borders aren't this. Um, they haven't been here since the dawn of time. You know they're a relatively new concept. Um, and up until relatively recently, you know, last hundred years or whatever, most of the world's borders, you could cross them without a passport. So the idea of abolishing borders isn't this fantasy idea where we're like, what would that even look like? Like, how would it work? Like, it's, it's in recent history that that was the case. People have been crossing borders for a long time and and they will continue to cross. I think maybe a useful way of looking at it is that a world without border is is very much rooted in ideas of fairness and social justice rather than, you know, the structural inequality, which is how the world is currently organised. So it'd be about looking at the fact that there is enough resources in, in the planet for everybody to have what they need, but there are issues of distribution and certain countries having a lot of something and that not existing in another place. So actually a no borders position says if people can move around more freely, then there'll be more, and again, yes, I realise this veers into the the language of kind of utopia, but more harmony, more people being able to have what they need, which means that, um, you know, inequality is what leads to things being certain actions which are kind of criminalised, people not having access to resources, people not having access to housing and mental health care. These are the things that make people not be able to operate within the kind of laws of the land so no borders is about in the same way that prison abolition is not about necessarily depending on your tactics you know just throwing open the doors of the prison and being like there we go prison abolished um it's about building the world 
that would make those things obsolete. So creating the structures, which means that borders don't exist. I would argue they currently don't need to exist, but if people are concerned about, you know, things like housing and access to healthcare and always oh, there going to be enough to go around, actually, yes, there is a crisis in housing and there is a crisis in, in the NHS, but it's not because of migration. Actually, way more people could come here and things would be fine if the, those things weren't kind of being chronically underfunded by the government that we currently have. So it's about kind of practically looking at the fact that open borders or no borders is very doable. What are the things that we need to create and put in place in our societies so that everybody can have what they need? Does that mean that some people should agree to have less so that everyone can have enough? I think when we talk about the idea of less, I mean, it's not going to be you know, your average working class person having like their salary cut by 50%. Like there's a certain kind of strata of incredibly wealthy people in the world. You know, there are, there are billionaires. Billionaires don't need to exist. Like once you have enough money to, you know, keep yourself safe and comfortable and have a roof over your head and have your food and, you know, recreation and leisure, like you don't need billions of pounds or dollars of wealth to exist in this in this world comfortably. So we're not talking about your everyday person having to take a massive hit. We're talking about the massive chasm of inequality between the very rich and people who are living on, you know, $5 a day, $1 a day, which is 10% of people in the world, you know, living on on $2 a day or less. We're saying let's even out that massive inequality chasm so that everybody can have what would be by pretty much everybody's standard an incredibly comfortable life. We just wouldn't have like billionaires and then people living on the poverty line we would have everybody kind of comfortably being in the middle and and yeah this very much moves towards kind of socialist principles of universal basic income and yeah making sure that if you start earning a billion pounds you actually have to kind of give that back out to society rather than keeping it for yourself Mm. the challenge being that the the people who um, have that money are the people who hold the reins that's the catch yes <laughs> very much so <laughs> is it is it an opportunity for for reinvention for for something different mm. um, maybe yeah I, are you hopeful I think I think we have to be I think that's the 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 joy of abolition is that it's premised upon this this vision, which again isn't this fantasy like pie in the sky idea, it's a vision that's being enacted in the here and now. Like people are already crossing borders, people are already living in a kind of borderless fashion. So abolition is is very much a kind of creative, visionary kind of political approach. I think there was this really great talk that um, Aaron Dassey Roy did, and I think it's called "The Pandemic Is a Portal," or maybe that was just the phrase from it that I remembered a lot. Um, and she was talking about, yeah, the pandemic is this opportunity to to move through the portal and think very seriously about what baggage are we going to leave behind and what are we going to bring through that portal with us. Um, and it's an opportunity, you know, in the work that I'm doing, we're kind of saying to the government, this is the way that immigration controls and restrictions are impacting families in the pandemic. Can you kind of change these things? Can you expand this category of people um, who can access these different benefits and then using that as a leap pad to 
you know, ex- extend that beyond the pandemic. It's not just going to be a, a temporary grace period where people can, you know, get free school meals or whatever. We're kind of building it for the long haul. So I think it is an opportunity to to rethink and and retrain focus on what's needed for for the world that we want to build together. Excellent. That is a better note. To end on. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you so much oh, um, for your time and, and your passion for this. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. A big thank you to Leah Cohen. Her book, Border Nation, A Story of Migration, is a short and super effective primer on everything immigration and borders in the UK and beyond. It's published by Pluto Press. You'll find links in the show notes as well as to Arundhati Roy's piece, The Pandemic is a Portal, which Leah referenced. And as always, a full transcript at borderlinepod.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter and become a member, which would absolutely make my day. I'm your host, Isabel Rogol. Music is by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. I'll talk to you next week.